Hello, this is William Fink, and this program is being pre-recorded for Christagenia Saturdays for Saturday, September 1st, 2018. Once again, I am here with Sven Longshanks, and this will be Bible Basics Part 4. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and certainly not the God of the Jews, and thank you for listening. This series is meant to be a semi-formal and semi-structured discussion or a set of discussions regarding the scope, meaning, and purpose of the Bible, aimed at giving those who are not familiar with our Identity Christian Creed a basic foundation for understanding it. Hello, Sven Longshanks, and thank you for being here. Hi, Bill. Uh, glad to be here once again. Um, I am enjoying this series. I, I think before we get into uh, this episode, maybe it would be worth just having a, a brief recap of what we've done so far. I think in the first one, we established the veracity of the scriptures uh, and and just proving that what they are saying can be taken as eyewitness reports. And then we looked at uh, corroborating information from, from pagan works and how they were talking about being created by the serpent, basically non-white works that were talking about being made, made by the serpent and uh, how that contrasts with what we're taught in the Bible about the white man, Adam, being created by God and the serpent being the enemy. And then we looked at, um, we looked at the different nations that came from Noah in, in Genesis chapter 10. And, and we spent quite some time establishing that each one of these nations was white. Adam was white and Noah was white. Noah's three sons were white and all the nations that came from him were white. And then last week we were looking at the Abrahamic covenant, the important covenant that was made with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and eventually Jacob, Israel. And this covenant was completely, it wasn't dependent upon anything that uh, the Israelites did. It, it was it was a promise to them that there would be nations and a company of nations that came from them, that they would have kings and princes. And all of this was, it didn't, didn't rely on them obeying any laws whatsoever. That came later. That was a later covenant that uh, they had to obey these laws. And if they didn't obey these laws, they, there would be a curse, which is sort of what we're getting to in, in this episode, where the Israelites, they've, they've come in, they've taken their, their land, they've taken their country from the Canaanites who we established were the, this non-white, non-white race that could be traced back to Cain, basically. They've taken their land, they've, they've, they've built the United Kingdom, and then they've started falling apart. And, and it's from there that we hear about the dispersal where they where they leave their land and that that's pretty much where we got up to i mean that's the the basic story so far and as our understanding of it and you know the, the judeo-christians they don't seem to think it's that important the book of genesis but it but i you know it's always been my most favorite book of the bible to be honest it's uh you, you know very often what people don't understand they dismiss as being unimportant people even scoff at I have people who are Judeo-Christians in, in my wider circles of associates who scoff at the classics because they don't understand the classics. So they go on Wikipedia and they repeat all of the um, slanders against um, Herodotus, for instance, or, or Homer, 
or, or any ancient writer that, that are perpetuated by the Jews who have the greatest interest in disconnecting us from our ancient history. So Genesis is extremely important, and so are the um, the ancient classical writings and classical histories, which may be pagan in nature, but help us understand Genesis. They back everything up, don't they? I mean, especially when we get later on and we hear about, um, you know, in the Bible, all we're, ta- all we're taught about is what happens with the remnant of the tribe of Judah, a tiny portion of the tribe of Judah that, that went back to Jerusalem, and we hear nothing at all about what happened to the the other 10 tribes you know 10 times as many people uh, more than that than actually uh, was actually just in the tribe of Judah and we hear nothing about them but but of course then we hear about them in in the in the pagan histories we hear about them elsewhere which really just you know it just contributes to just how truthful the bible is it's all corroborating evidence and it's corroborating evidence that the mainstream churches choose to completely ignore that's absolutely true, and and there's plenty of corroborating historical evidence and New Testament evidence which upholds our Christian identity perspective, and we're going to get into some of that today. Last, um, well, two programs ago, when we discussed the Genesis 10 nations, we mentioned the Tartesians of what became known later as the Iberian Peninsula, but we didn't mention who the Iberians were. We mentioned the Ionian Greeks, but there were many tribes that the Greeks consisted of that weren't Ionian, like the Danans and the Dorians, significantly, and we didn't see their origin in those Genesis 10 nations. We mentioned the um, Meshach and, and Tubal and Elam and Madai, who are the, the, the um, who can be connected to the later Slavic tribes and the Medes and the Persians. And we mentioned them, but we didn't mention the Scythians, the Goths, the Alans that came later in history from that same region. There are no, when this Genesis 10 table of nations, when these nations um, formed the white world of the time of Moses, perhaps 15, 1600 BC, we don't see Germans, we don't see Belgians or Swiss or, or Finns or any of these tribes that make up modern Europe. And that's because most of them did not exist until the colonization, the later colonization of parts of Europe from Syria and Palestine, and until the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites into the Caucasus mountain region. Those people formed the, the, the rest of the modern world. And this is a story that's very clear in classical history. Once you have an overall scope of classical history in conjunction with an understanding of the Bible. What we can discuss aspects of that. I I think that um, 
and and we will hear this this afternoon we saw many promises that the ancient israelites were to become nations or companies of nations and that they were going to be spread out to the north to the east to the south and to the west much of this scattering and nation building came through early colonization and much of it came involuntarily after the assyrian and babylonian deportations in order to grasp the importance of this, the significance of this, we must understand those Abrahamic covenants and the promises carried down through specific sons and grandsons of Abraham and how everything in the Bible which follows after those promises is predicated upon those promises Otherwise, the entire Bible is meaningless and basically void of context. And what good is any book that's void of context? The first place where um, it says that Israel was to be scattered is in the curses of disobedience in um, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And many of those curses of disobedience are happening right now, right? I mean, we could sit all day and discuss that. But that's where we first read the um, concept that the children of Israel are going to be scattered all over the, all over the planet or, or, or at least all over the known world at that time. Okay. You might want to... Uh, yeah, I'll read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64, if I start there. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people, from the one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest, but the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind, and thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shalt have none assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, Would God it were even, and at even thou shalt say, Would God it were morning, for the fear of thine heart wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see, and the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships, by the way whereof I spake unto thee. Thou shalt see it no more again, and there ye shall be sold unto your enemies, for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Now, now where it says Egypt in, in verse 68, Egypt and, and even Assyria later on, much later on in Scripture, are basically allegories that they're metaphors for captivity. And we can read, and the Lord shall bring thee into captivity again with ships, because Egypt represents captivity very often in the prophetic books of Scripture. Not understanding metaphors and allegories and idioms like that causes a lot of confusion 
because we should, if we take this literally, picture the Israelites going from Palestine to Egypt in ships in, as slaves, and, and of course that never happened. But they did go into captivity many times, and, and this, the, this um, passage represents a people that were going to be scattered from their original land and brought into other places as slaves or remaining in, an, in, in a never-ending state of war. And when we look at the, the history of the dispersions of our own race, that's basically what we find, that very often we were enslaved, that the Israelites were later enslaved by the Assyrians, that the um, fact that entire tribes have been enslaved to, to kings, to tyrants, to popes over the centuries, and, and often don't even know it. Uh, I mean, Catholics were basically, the Catholics in Germany were slaves to the bishops and the popes in, in Germany for, for centuries and didn't even realize it. Today in America, we're all slaves to, to the um, Jewish supremacist order, and, and most of our people don't even know it, to the international capitalists and bankers, and, and people think they're free, but they're still enslaved. So we're still in this Egypt. We're still in captivity. And, and we were, many of us were brought here in captivity as indentured servants or as slaves. So that this, it, it's picturing a, a scattering of people and a state of war or slavery over a long period of time as a punishment for disobedience. There's, a, there's also that mention that they're going to be worshipping other gods. and Right, they're going to be pagans. Yeah, I, I mean, and when, when, I mean, the Jews have claimed that they are worshipping the God of, of the Old Testament all this time. You know, they've never been worshipping pagan gods. And yet when we look back in the European history, it's full of pagan gods. But not until later on. I mean, apparently the, the Druids, they didn't worship um idols and they didn't worship this pantheon of gods that the, the the nordic ones did but the nordic peoples came here later than the original british Druid, druidic ones did and when they came here they, they brought along these ideas of of worshiping all these various different gods who, who i think we can look back and see there were actually um honorable noble white men and they they went from honouring them to actually worshipping them. That's why you hear, you hear of um, people like Odin actually being a king. But they ended up worshipping them. They ended up idolising them, and they ended up worshipping these pagan gods. Basically, they, they, they were they were pagan peoples. The Europeans were, but but the Israelites were pagan peoples by that time. That's why they had this punishment. Is because that's what they were doing. They weren't following the Old Testament. They weren't following Yahweh. They, they were following the, the traditions of, of the peoples around them, worshipping Ishtar. And of course, you know, we still have the, this word Easter today, which comes from Ishtar. Worshipping Baal. And then, of course, you get the word Beltane for these, these pagan festivals. And you can see that all these pagan ideas can be traced back to this, this part of the world with, with these Canaanite ideas. And this worship of fertility goddesses and fertility worship. And, you know, this is proof to me that we are the, the Israelites. 
And anyone that says that, oh, oh, you know, it's the Jews. Well, the Bible doesn't bear that out. The Bible tells us a different story. You shouldn't be looking for uh, people that are worshipping Yahweh in European history to see whether we are the children of Israel. You should be looking for, for people that are pagan. I mean, it even says later on that they were dressing up Christmas trees, I think, in Jeremiah, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's described in Jeremiah chapter 10. It, it may not be some people dispute the interpretation, but it talks about bringing a, a tree into your house and adorning it in silver and gold. Now, that on the surface could represent what we do with a Christmas tree. But in ancient, in ancient times, that they actually took the, the stocks of trees and, and beat them and formed them and adorn them in silver and gold or, or even gilded them in silver and gold. So it, it's, it can be describing ancient idol worship, but it's also describing what we know as a Christmas tree. There, there are many parallels between the, the literature and the Edas and things that, be connect, that could be connected back to um, the Hebrew scriptures or, or to Hebrew um, traditions. Uh, I mean, look at the word Odin. The, the Hebrew word for Lord, one Hebrew word, because there are several, for Lord is Adon. And that, that Odin seems to be from that Hebrew word for Lord. And, and if that was the only correlation... I wouldn't even mention it, but look at the word balder, balder or balder. Bal is a, also another Hebrew word for Lord is Baal, and it's basically a synonym of Odin. And that word door is a Hebrew word, which um, means it could mean a remnant or it could mean a generation. It could mean a period of time. It, it has a wide array of uses. We see it very often in um, ancient Hebrew scriptures. There was even a Hebrew town named Dor, and we have the Dorian Greeks can be established as having come from Dor. So, so this word Dor had a wide array of uses in Hebrew. Baal Dor could mean remnant of Baal among other possible meanings. And and then we have this word loci, for instance. And loci is um the the Latin word Lucifer, the sea was originally hard in in old Roman Latin. And and you could read that in a lot of academic sources on, on a Latin language. <coughs> And Lucifer wouldn't be pronounced Lucifer. It would be pronounced Lucifer. And, and that loci is basically the, the, the mischievous or wicked god of, of the Eddas and the malicious god of the Eddas and, 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 and of the ancient Germanic poetry. And that's not just a coincidence. That's not a coincidence at all. These Eddas are not as old, some of them, as people really think they are. But they reflect um, both developing mythology and, and tales and legends, as well as ancient traditions that point their way back 
to the Hebrew scriptures and to the Hebrew background of, of the people that bore them who were now pagans. When we look overseas, when we look into places, when we look into places where the Israelites were scattered, we will always find pagans. And and their scattering can can in ancient times can certainly be established. If if you study the Hebrew Bible, Tyre was actually the great Phoenician city was actually an Israelite city. And that can be established in especially in the Septuagint. It could be established in the Hebrew Old Testament that Tyre was an Israelite city. It wasn't a Canaanite city. And Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, informs us, and we could see this in many other places, that Tyre was the city from which the Phoenicians had built many of their overseas colonies and established many of their overseas colonies. Carthage was only the beginning because the Iberian Peninsula, why is it called Iberia? Because the Hebrew word Iber or Eber means across, the other side. Iberia was called Iberia by Hebrews because it was across the sea. It was on the other side of the sea. Later, in the Caucasus Mountains, Strabo the geographer, Strabo of Cappadocia, described in Iberia, on the other side of the Caucasus Mountains, from the, the Greek side, or the Syrian side, or the Median side, whatever the Armenian side, whatever you want to consider it. The other side of the Caucasus Mountains was another land called Iberia. And Strabo believed that the two different Iberians were related based on their appearance and their practices and, and their traditions. And we can establish that they were indeed related because the Iberia on the other side of the Caucasus Mountains from Armenia was where the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations crossed over on their way to Europe. And the Iberia that we see in the Iberian Peninsula was where the Phoenician Israelites crossed the sea to get to the other side, to the other side of the Mediterranean, from, from the Levant, from the other side of, of, of the Mediterranean, from Carthage, it, it, whichever way you want to go. That's why it was called Iberia. And <clears throat> what we have in the tragic poets of the 5th century BC, references to these people called Danae, who came from Egypt, and the tribe of Dan are called Dani in Hebrew, and that they were primarily red-haired or blonde-haired and came, fled Egypt. They were depicted quite sarcastically as um, girls who fled from, fled from the men of Egypt because they didn't want to be married to the Egyptians. And I, I really believe that that was a satire, that was a satirical view of history, which happened actually a thousand years before the Tragic Poets, and a remembrance, a remembrance that these, this tribe of Dan, these Dani in, in, Greek, in, in Greece actually came from Egypt, and they were the Hebrew tribe of Dan. These um, 
Phoenicians of Thebes in Egypt and and Thessaly and various other places were described as being blonde. And we find those descriptions in Seven Against Thebes. The the, the, the depictions of, of the Athenian or Ionian Greek wars with the Thebans made by Euripides and Aeschylus and other tragic poets and, and people of the time. Danos and Cadmus. Danos and Cadmus were Danos the Egyptian, the eponymous ancestor of the Danae, and Cadmus the Phoenician. And to these two men, the Greeks attributed the bringing to Greece from Egypt and and from Tyre, actually, in in Palestine, the the arts and, and letters and many of the skilled trades. These men were credited for that by a thousand years of Greek writers. I mean, by all of the the, the classical writers made that accreditation. And Cadmus was the brother, I believe, of Europa, who was who raped by Zeus. She was a Phoenician raped by Zeus, and, and Europe was later named for her. She had a, um, a another brother, or perhaps it was a nephew, Heracles. And, and Heracles was worshipped by Greeks and Romans alike as Hercules, right? And, and for, for many hundreds of years, these roots of um, Greek myth and, and Greek legends and blood connections to the Phoenicians of Palestine and, and these people that fled Egypt are all throughout Greek mythology. That This isn't just that something that, that um, is incidental in one or two places. It's all throughout Greek myth and mythology. We see connections to the Hebrews of Palestine or, or the Hebrews in uh, the aliens or strangers in Egypt. I think Hercules can be traced back to um, Phoenicia. Hercules, the actual worship of Hercules, the early, earliest temple is in Phoenicia, and I think um, you know the word itself originates in Phoenicia. Right. Dionysius also originated in 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 Phoenicia. Andromeda, the story of Perseus, um, saving Andromeda from the sea monster occurred in Joppa in Palestine. Joppa is a city mentioned in the Bible and belonging to the Israelites. And Josephus even even wrote of that, that that was where um, Perseus saved Andromeda from the sea monster. And that's an ancient Greek myth or legend. So, so, and it probably represents some factual event. Maybe it wasn't a literal sea monster, right? But it probably represents some factual event of, of dark antiquity, right? Of, of lost history. You know, it'd be very strange if, um, you know, if the Israelites hadn't actually gone out and colonized anywhere, because if you actually look at that land of Canaan, it, that, that's all it is. It's just, it's seafront and very, very fertile land. It, it's a great big long strip of, of seafront, absolutely perfect for, for pushing sailing ships from. 
So if they hadn't actually used it for that, they would have been absolutely crazy. Because there were dispersions before this one. I mean, they knew that they were going to get attacked by Syria. There would have been people that, that have been fleeing from from that area for quite some time, I would have thought, in ships. Plus, again, you've got the the uh, ships of Tarshish that, that you've mentioned before. You know, they, they were pushing off from that beach as well as travelling o- overland later on with these dispersions, I think. Well, well the, um, the Phoenicians were best known to the early Greeks for their purple dye, which they harvested from certain mollusks, mollusks meaning shellfish, right? From certain shellfish. They went out into the sea and harvested these shellfish and extracted this purple dye. was one of the byproducts of the shellfish. And the word Phoenicia, in, in, in the Greek forms of the word for Phoenicians and, and Phoenix, that they are without doubt derived from the Greek word Phoinus, which is purple, and Phoenike, which is of purple, is the word Phoenician, the word translated Phoenician. So we see that the Greeks named these people after one aspect of their trade with them. And this Greek writing doesn't occur until the, the first, the earliest Greek writing we know is Homer. And it can be established, even though some people claim Homer wrote in the 8th century BC. I'm certain, and I can establish it, Homer wrote at the end of the 7th century BC, towards the end of it. Well, well, that doesn't really matter one way or another, because the Phoenicians of Scripture and of Greek legend date all the way back to the time of David and Solomon. And, and maybe a little before that. And, and the time of David and Solomon is 400 years after the establishment of the Israelite kingdom in, in Palestine. And the Bible informs us all the way back in the book of Judges, where the song of Deborah appears in Judges chapter 5. And it could be established that that is probably around the 14th century B.C., 1300 and something B.C., that that was written, that those historical events took place, we see um, lines like, why did Dan remain in ships? And Asher abode, meaning the tribe of Asher, Asher abode in his breaches. And that word breaches is a Hebrew word for inlets or ports on the sea. There's other language that helps to establish these connections also in, in, in that early period of scripture. So that the, the Israelites certainly were engaged in sea trade and, and in port cities. Bible maps today are um, drawn by the Jews, basically. And, and the Jews try to make the claim that they're distinct from the Phoenicians because that's the first key to understanding the, the history of the scripture is the identity of the Phoenicians. The Jews have long tried to 
distinguished between Phoenicia and Israel in their Bible maps. But if we read the text of the Bible, we find that distinction is impossible because the text of the Bible is telling us that the in, in the land assigned to Asher and, and Zebulun and, and Naphtali, that they, the Israelites certainly were the people who inhabited those port cities along the coast, and they certainly were the people who established the overseas trade and, and the overseas colonies. Solomon's kingdom extended up to Palmyra, which is in the north of Syria. So you, you can go from Jerusalem to Palmyra and right the way along there, that, that was Israelite land. So that is Phoenicia and that is that, that seafront, a massive seafront. You compare that to the seafront that Egypt had or, or anywhere right. else. And, and Palmyra, it, it, it's called in um, the coasts of Israel, the coasts of Syria, all the way to Hamath, which is an inland city in the far north of Syria. So, so they controlled the, it's often called the entering in of Hamath, the seaports that lead, that, that lead you to get to Hamath. And, and this language is, um, in the King James Version of the Bible, is antiquated, but you, you can see all of the connections with far northern Syria, right? And, and the Greeks had explained that, that a lot of their, their own people and their own leaders and kings had come from, from the east and from Syria, or had connections to the east and Syria, so and and Phoenicia. So so we see clear um, connections with Aryan or white Mediterranean settlements and ancient Palestine. Well, we have them particularly. I was going to say, we, we, have them, we have them particularly from um, the Lacedaemonians, the Spartans, don't we, from um, written about in, right. in Josephus. Do you want me to um, read that quote out? Um, yeah, go ahead and read that, because this is one of the most explicit um, passages from ancient history connecting um, Dorian Greeks to the Israelites of Palestine. Well, this is a, a letter from the king of Sparta to Jerusalem, and it's in Josephus Antiquities, book 12, and it starts at verse 226. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, sends greetings. We have met with a certain writing, whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of the same family, and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concerns as you please. We will also do the same thing, and esteem your concerns as our own, and will look upon our concerns as in common with you. Demoteles, who brings you this letter, will bring your answer back to us. This letter is four-square, and the seal is an eagle with a dragon in his claws." And, and this same letter is also recorded in the Book of the Maccabees, which is a much older source than Josephus, probably 150, 200 years older than Josephus. And in, in Maccabees, where there's something that Joseph, Josephus didn't really record, is a reply 
to this letter. From Onias had a lot of trouble in Jerusalem, so the apply the reply is from a high priest ten or twelve years later, and that helps that helps me understanding when the letter was written and when the reply was written helps me establish the veracity of the letter and and that's because the jews and and Jewish commentators or those who are sympathetic to the Jews claim that this letter was only propaganda, that the Spartans, and and I say Spartans rather than Lacedaemonians because Sparta is um, a, a word that's much more familiar to most of our listeners, and the Spartans were the chief city, Sparta was the chief city of Lacedaemonia. The the Spartans were a Lacedaemonian people. Lacedaemonia is one district in the southeastern, I think, part of the Peloponnesus or that large um, peninsula at the at the bottom of Greece, right? <laughs> Athens is on the mainland and they're connected by a thin strip of land. The, the mainland Greece and, and the Peloponnesus are connected by a thin strip of land where Corinth, the city of Corinth, was situated. Well, well um, Corinth was at the top of the Peloponnesus and Sparta was at the bottom of the Peloponnesus and, and Lacedaemon. So this king of the Lacedaemonians would, would also be the king of the Spartans. The, you know, Sparta was a city in, in that district. So it's... um. A clear relationship being claimed here, and it's really not just for political purposes, because when Onias was the high priest, it was at a time when the remnant of Israelites in Jerusalem around 155 to 160 BC were being oppressed by the Syrians. So that is why Onias didn't answer this letter um, readily, and it was answered by one of his successors several years later. Well, they try to dismiss this as a um, as a as, as a ploy to make a political alliance, but the king of Sparta is actually making this address to a very weak and oppressed Jerusalem and never came to their aid militarily. It was beyond his reach to come to their aid militarily. This is not a letter merely seeking political alliance. This is a letter making plain statements. And the the claims of familial relationship aren't based on any alliance. His offer of alliance is being based on the claims of familial relationship. This isn't just a ploy. This same letter is in Maccabees, and it's responded to in Maccabees. Well, the ancient Corinthians were also Dorian Greeks. Can I just say something and, about um can I just say something about the about the reply? Because I was yes. I had a look at the reply today and 
it seemed to me that it, it was almost quite offhand. It, it, it was as if the uh, Lacedaemonians were deferring to the Judeans because the, the reply to it is, yes, we already know about that. It's, it's in our sacred scriptures. We know, we know, right. we know this. It's as if you don't need to tell us this. We already know this. Right. As if, as if they are the ones that are sort of above the Lacedaemonians. That's how it seemed to me anyway. Yes, yes absolutely. And, and the Lacedaemonians would have realized that. And, and that letter that the king of Sparta wrote basically reflects that. That the, um, <clears throat> how do I word this? The, the reply after the oppression of, of, from the Syrians upon the Maccabees at the time of Onias, the John Hyrcanus and, and Simon Hyrcanus, that they, um, the kings, or, or the, I shouldn't call them kings, I'm sorry, the high priests at Jerusalem were the, were the natural leaders of the nation at this time. They didn't have a king. Now, later on, the high priests claimed kingship. They claimed the position of king, but that didn't happen until um, Alexander Maccabeus in the very beginning or the very end of the second century, very beginning of the first century BC, about 70 years later. Anyway, in this time, the people of Jerusalem are oppressed by the Syrians, but by the Seleucid Greek rulers of Syria. And they, Simon Maccabee and, and his brothers actually led an uprising against the Syrians, against the Seleucids, and defeated them. They defeated them by themselves. So the letter in reply to the king of the Lacedaemonians is very upbeat and optimistic and reflects their recent victory, even though it doesn't really state it, it reflects their recent victory over the Syrians and the state that the nation is in. So these letters can be dated along those lines, and we can understand the circumstances that they were written under. So the king of Sparta was actually offering help based on a familial relationship, but the people of Jerusalem didn't write to accept any help or didn't make any appeal to him for military assistance. They handled the Syrians on their own and defeated the Seleucids. So that's the political circumstances under which the letters were written. Um, once we understand that the ancient Corinthians were also Dorian Greeks, we see what Paul meant and what he was referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I don't know if you want to read like the first four verses of, of that passage. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all had passed through the sea and all up to Moses had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea, and all had eaten the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. This passage in Paul fully supports the claims of the king who wrote that letter 200 years before Paul wrote this letter. To the Corinthians. 
That's that nice. letter was written from the Lacedaemonians, who are Dorian Greeks by their race, to Onias, 200 years before Paul wrote his epistle to the Corinthians, who were also Dorian Greeks by their race. That's one of the reasons why you would have known that it was that was the, it was the Corinthians that they needed to go to, and the same as when um, uh, the the person that was working for Onias when he replied to the Lacedaemonians and, and said, "Well, we know all this; it's in our sacred scripture." That's how come we can tell that the the Lacedaemonians and the people from that area were from the tribes of Israel is because it's all there in, in the Old Testament. It tells us that. I mean, they had the same scriptures as us, so when they say we know this because it's in our sacred scripture, we've got the access to that as well. And yet yet it's denied today that the, these people were, were Israelites. So that, that, this is how Paul knew. Thucydides. Thucydides imagined writing around Dom. He probably wrote his histories from 430 to 420 BC, I imagine. Maybe a little later, but he he didn't he didn't finish his history of the Peloponnesian Wars. But Thucydides was an Athenian general who imagined that the Dorians came from the north. That's all he said. But he never put that in a greater historical context. So generations of academics after him in the modern times, have just taken it for granted that the Dorians came from the north. But if you read Homer, and Strabo of Cappadocia really respected Homer, not because he he loved his tales, but for the accurate knowledge of the world around him. And Strabo used other ancient writers to, to display the accuracy of Homer's depiction of what his world looked like at the time of the Trojan War, about 1200 BC. Even though Homer is writing 600 years later, he's describing the world around the Greeks as he believed it existed around 1200 BC. He mentions no Dorians in the north. He lists other people in the north, who were there before the Dorians, like the Thracians and, and the Mycians and, and the relations between them, and the Lydians and the Pelasgians and tribes like that. But he doesn't mention Dorians anywhere but being on Crete. And of course, it can be understood reading um, the classical histories that Crete was sort of like a staging area. The population of Crete overturned four or five times in ancient history. And Crete was sort of like a staging area for tribes migrating from the eastern parts of the Mediterranean into Greece. Homer's Crete contained Dorians, but Homer never mentioned Dorians anywhere but Crete. Now, according to all Greek legends and histories, the Dorians invaded the Peloponnesus two two generations after the Trojan War. Perhaps two generations after the Trojan War. That's when the Dorians invaded the Peloponnesus and 
destroyed the ancient Mycenaean civilization, which was Danon in nature. Homer calls all the Greeks of the pre-Dorian invasion Danons. Those Peloponnesus, Greeks of the Peloponnesus are all Danons. So the Dorians came and destroyed the Danon government, but not all the people, two generations after the Trojan War. And the Dorians referred to the Danons as perioikoi, which means people dwelling around, and then slaved them, made them slaves, fulfilling part of Deuteronomy chapter 28. <laughs> they made them slaves. And, and this is evident in, in um, many of the ancient classical writings that this happened. So we see in Flavius Josephus a claim by these Lacedaemonians, these Dorian Greeks, to be Israelites. And we see in Paul of Tarsus that claim is substantiated. How do the Judeo-Christians argue that? How do the Judeo-Christians argue that? I mean, it's so obviously there, isn't it? It's saying that they were under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, they were all immersed along with Moses, and, and they even talk of the, the spiritual rock there, and yet, um, you know, no, nobody acknowledges the fact that these Corinthians were actually Israelites. Right. And and they, that they... um. That's what Paul's saying. But the, the Judeo-Christians, the mainstream Christians, you know, Jews, Jews have been writing Christian Bible commentaries since at least the 13th century. Even Martin, and I've said this on many podcasts, even Martin Luther was greatly affected by the Bible commentaries that were written by Nicholas of Lyra in the 13th century and Paul of Burgos in the 14th century. And the commentary by Nicholas of Lyra remained one of the most popular Bible commentaries in Europe for many centuries after his death and affected a great number of Roman Catholic academics and scholars who believe these commentaries written by the Jews, do you think they're going to tell the truth about the identity of the people of Europe? Do you think? Of course not. They never did. Justin Martyr was teaching replacement theology because he learned his Christianity from Jews. What were they saying? Spiritually under the, the clouds? Uh, what, spir- what were they saying then? It just meant spiritually under the cloud? They were just spiritually there with Moses? I mean, it's you can't argue with it, that can you? Makes no sense. That makes no sense. <laughs> Only the rock was spiritual, representing Christ, right? Only the drink was spiritual, representing the the fact that the water came out of the rock. Only the food was spiritual, representing the, the manna in the desert. But the people weren't spiritual. The people were actual physical people that passed through that cloud and passed through that sea. The Dorians migrated from Dor in Palestine through Crete in the 13th century BC during the Judges period of ancient Israel and eventually established themselves in the Peloponnesus. And this history 
in this letter from the king of the Lacedaemonians that's found in Josephus and it's found in the book of Maccabees, in concert with Paul of Tarsus's words in his epistles to the Corinthians, proves that narrative. The Judeo-Christians want to ignore the history or the Jews belittle the Oh, that's not really true. We're going to interpret that in a different manner. They want to ignore the history, and then they want to twist the words of Paul so that all of this doesn't matter, and it means something different from what it actually says. Identity Christians, as identity Christians, we believe that <clears throat> kinship means kin kinship, that bro a brother is somebody related to you by blood, that, that the word father means father, that the word seed means offspring, that, that the word according to the flesh means by race. And, and what we're going to see in um, a little later in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in that same chapter, Paul told these Corinthians, behold, Israel down through the flesh. That word kata sarkis can be translated down through the flesh, or it can be translated according to the flesh. Either way, Behold, Israel down through the flesh, meaning the real descendants of the genetic Israelites, are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. What then do I say? And Paul's talking about pagan idolatry. What do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And, and then he says, rather that whatever the nations sacrifice, the Gentiles in the King James Version, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Now, I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. Paul is actually telling these Corinthians that the nations, the pagan nations around them, are Israel according to the flesh, the real Israel according to the flesh, not spiritually, but down through the flesh. And we can see that, speaking to the Corinthians, Paul is talking about the other um, nations or people groups of Dorian Greeks and Romans, and, and the Illyrians were also descended from the Trojans as well as the Romans, that these other peoples of Europe, the Galatians, these other peoples of Europe around them, that had been practicing pagan idolatry were actually Israel according to the flesh. And we can establish in ancient classics and history and in our Old Testaments that many of those nations around the Corinthians did indeed descend from the Phoenicians, the Trojans, the Danans, the, the other branches of the Israelite people who made colonies or established settlements in Europe at diverse times between the Exodus and the Assyrian deportations over that period of, of basically 800 years. Paul and the Greeks and legends that. link, the Greeks and their legends link these people to people that came from Egypt 
or Palestine. Cadmus, Danos, the Phoenicians, the, the slaves fled from Egypt. The Greeks do that. We don't do it. The Greeks do it for us. <laughs> I think Paul, Paul regularly uses that phrase to describe himself as well, doesn't he? Say, I, I am an Israelite according to the flesh. So you can't argue yes. that it means anything else. No, it doesn't mean anything else. He prays for, for the Israelites in Israel who are his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 9 to describe the difference between Jacob and Esau because many of those people in the Israel of his time were Edomites who were not his kinsmen according to the flesh. He wasn't praying for them. He goes on to explain that they are vessels of destruction. And we can establish that the Jews of today descended from them and not from Paul's kindred kinsmen according to the flesh, who were truly Israelites. And he says, who are Israelites? Those Edomites were only Israelites by appearance, that they weren't genetic Israelites or Israelites inside, which is the term that Paul sort of used, I'm paraphrasing. Not all Israel are of Israel. It's another I'm one, sorry. isn't it? Not all Israel are of Israel is another one right. he uses. Once you understand this, that the New Testament becomes perfectly clear. We should discuss the um that the be, before the, the next citation from Flavius Josephus, right? We should discuss the Assyrian deportations to some extent. These Israelites had made overseas colonies and interacted with those colonies and, and traveled back and forth. Um, the Greeks called them Phoenicians, but they were Israelites, the Israelites of the Golden Age of Phoenicia. The Phoenicians of the Golden Age of Phoenicia were Israelites, and that can be established. And I do establish that in, in some of the essays at Christogenia. Well, well they interacted with, with this wider world and conducted trade. You could open up Ezekiel chapters 27 and 28 and see all the peoples that the Tyrians, the Phoenicians of Tyre, had conducted trade with. And it, it was um, basically the entire Mediterranean world that they had intercourse with. Tyre was a great trading city. And it was also basically subservient to Jerusalem. And we see that with the relationship of Hiram and David and Hiram and Solomon. It was subservient to and dependent upon Jerusalem all that time. Tyre was um, a city basically in a land of Asher and not in the land of Judah, of course. Well, that went on for seven or eight hundred years that trade and that intercourse with the Mediterranean world and many colonies were established from those Phoenicians all the way to Britain and Ireland. The um, river valleys of, of France and, and some of the river valleys along the parts of northern Europe that are warmed by the Gulf Stream were settled in an early time by these Phoenicians, mixed in with other of those Japetite tribes 
that had been in Europe for a thousand years before them or 1500 years before them. So it's not clear cut as to which ancient tribes belong to Japhethites or which belong to Phoenicians or Israelites. It, it's sometimes it's difficult to discern like the origin of the Basques, for instance, right? That that's one um, that that's or, or the origin of some of the more ancient tribes of the of the British, but it doesn't really matter because ultimately they were all of the same general race anyway in in those Genesis ten Adamic nations. So in, in the end, it, it's basically a petty thing to dispute. It says. But, um... I can say it says that Japet will will live in the tents of Shem. Do you, do you think that's referring yes. to 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 that point in time, or do you think it's referring to an earlier point in time? That prophecy. Well, I I believe that's that that's a prophecy of the ultimate fate of the Japhethite peoples that they would um, end up living in that these larger. Israelite nations, the, these more populous Israelite nations. So, so we see that by the time of Christ, the Romans, the Parthians, and the Scythians, and the Phoenicians had dominated the world, the known world, the, the white world, and all four of those people descended from the Israelites. All four of those people, Scythians, um, Romans, Parthians, and Phoenicians were primarily descended from the Israelites. But they had other tribes among them. For instance, um, Theodorus Siculus describes the Scythians in their migrations having taken Medes and Assyrians hostage out of Mesopotamia and having resettled them to purposely, forcefully, to locations around the Black Sea. Diodorus describes that in book two of his Library of History. Isn't there also um, different different origins for them as well? Like the, um, the Parthians and the Scythians, they didn't come about until after the Assyrian, Assyrian dispersions, whereas um, the Romans came about from before then. Uh, isn't there actually some reference to, to the Romans having actually left Egypt and not actually coming out with Moses? Am I right in thinking that? Well, well, I can establish an ancient myth. It's something very difficult to establish in history. But an ancient myth and, and in correlations made in, in the Bible, especially in 1 Kings chapter 4, where it speaks about Solomon's wisdom, what we see, um, Danos, I'm, I'm sorry, not Danos, we, we see Darda and Kalkal are mentioned amongst the men with whom Solomon competed in wisdom. And Dada and Kalkal are actually figures from, that are also found in Greek mythology. Dada is the eponymous ancestor of, of the Dardanians, the Dardans, and that name Dardans survived in history all the way to the time of Procopius, who wrote in the 6th century AD saying that there were Dardans 
among the Illyrians, and that Justinian was a from the tribe of the Dardans of Illyria. And Procopius was writing 6th century AD. He was a contemporary of Justinian. Well, well the, the um, Darda was the what was the figure who was believed to have established his race at the site which was the, the in the area, which was later known as the Troad in northwestern Anatolia or modern day Turkey, right? And all of the legends about Darda say that he came from the Isles of the Sea into Anatolia and established his settlement there, which the most famous city was later Troy. And Darda would have lived probably around, if, if we look at the genealogy which Homer gives down to the establishment of Troy and down to Priam and Hector and the time of the um, Trojan War, Darda would have probably lived in the 15th or 16th centuries B.C., and if Homer's accurate, which we have no reason to dispute except to dismiss it, right? We could just dismiss it. But if Darda lived around that time, he certainly was a son or a grandson or a great-grandson of Zara, the son of Judah, which is how the Bible determines him. Now, Calcol, in, in the Bible, that there's a figure in... Greek mythology dating from the same time as Darda, of, of Calchas, who also came from the islands of the sea, but he established his settlement in what the Greeks later knew as Pamphylia. And Pamphylia actually comes from a Greek term meaning all tribes, meaning that a lot of other people were also settled there. But Calcol is the legendary founder, Calchas is the legendary founder of Pamphylia. Darda is the legendary founder of the, the, the people, the Dardanians in the Troad, who were later known as in part as Trojans. And we have these connections in the Bible to Solomon and to the tribe of Judah. Now, the sons, so. of, sons, of, sons of Zara. And don't they disappear from a census that was taken in Egypt? I mean, Zara goes off to Egypt, and then you don't hear of them after. Am I right in thinking that? Well, well, that's a little confusion. It, it couldn't have been the entire. The tribe of Zara was always in, um, had a presence amongst the Israelites of the Exodus, but they weren't the ruling family. The tribe of Pharez was. The it, it's. Just like even though he was the firstborn, so even though he was the firstborn, isn't it? Even though he was the firstborn, he wasn't the ruling family, so he would have a a reason to get away from there and and set up, you know, with his own people somewhere else. I would have thought, right? And and that's that. That's absolutely our contention. That that Zara was the firstborn. The inheritance rightfully belonged to Zara. It was never removed from him in scripture. So, the line of Pharez ruled in Palestine. Zara, being the firstborn, must have had a greater inheritance. So, we have to find it. And, and that's a religious angle, but 
it's still valid. It's just as valid as the historical angle. And there are historical connections to the tribe of Judah and these Trojans that we find later in history. Those connections are um, in our Bible, but they're also supported by all of the things that Homer said about these people. They came from the sea, and 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 Strabo and Diodorus Siculus fill in a lot of the blanks that Homer didn't describe, that these people came from the, the islands of the sea, they settled the coastlands of Anatolia, and, and did it at a time that corresponds to when the Bible says these men existed. So Darda and Kalkal are... are um, that evidence is thin, and, and it's based on a scant few passages, but it's definitely, I believe, solid evidence of the origin of these people. <clears throat> and there's no other explanation for that origin. So they, they would have gone on to then, then become the Romans. Obviously, Latinus formed the Romans. He was descended from Trojan stock. But do, don't we then get um, when Paul's talking to the Romans and he says that you, you weren't under the law or some, something like that, meaning you weren't under Moses, but, but you were still part of Israel. Right. And, and that, that, yes, the connections, the connections in the mythology and the early histories, right? And people want to dispute this and they just want to dismiss it, that they want to say that it's Roman propaganda, but it's pretty consistent throughout all of the ancient histories. It's in Livy, it's in Strabo, it's in Diodorus Siculus, it's in um, the propaganda works of the poet Virgil, and because it's because the poet Virgil was basically a propagandist for Caesar, people want to dismiss the entire legend as propaganda. But it's obvious from the other writers that the legend was around long before Virgil. That the Romans descended as a colony from the de defeated Trojans. And that the Illyrians themselves are descended from the defeated Trojans and, and the, the people of the Dardanians. And like I said, Procopius identifies a tribe known as Dardans or Dardanians amongst the Illyrians. So it's possible that only a segment of the people had retained that tribal identification. But it's there nonetheless, and, and it has to be explained. And it's only explained by an acceptance of the legend. There's a lot of other evidence that, that's um, strewn throughout the classics, but that's the core evidence that, that can easily be looked up by anybody online. Just look up um, Strabo on, on Lacurtius, on, on the Perseus Project at Tufts University, and search for the words. And, and you could find the passages or just look at my Trojan Romans paper on, on Christogenia and, and you'll find not all, but a lot of the relevant passages from the, from those classical historians. <clears throat> and it, the, the myths simply can't be 
that they can't just simply be dismissed. There are no competing myths for the origin of the Roman people or the origin of the Illyrians. And these myths were, were accepted all throughout the ancient histories. And, and it's clear that these people did not exist going back 2,000 years. Rome wasn't founded until 753 B.C. And the fact Paul was writing to them with it with his epistle, I mean, there's your proof right there that, that they're Israelites. So all the people that Paul uh, evangelized to, that all the apostles right. went to, they, they were all Israelites. So the evidence the would be there. The wording and the circumstances illustrated by Paul's epistle to the Romans proves the veracity of the myths. We have to understand that Paul had access. He was raised in Tarsus, which was, according to Strabo, the third city of learning among the Greeks, the third most prominent. It was only eclipsed by Alexandria and Athens. So Tarsus was a very esteemed um, center of learning, and, and we could call it a university town, right? It was a very esteemed um, cultural center and, and center of, of education amongst all the Greek cities. And Paul was raised there. And if you read Strabo or Diodorus Siculus, when I read um, Strabo comes in eight volumes, and when I read some of them, I took to the habit of listing all of the ancient writers that Strabo mentioned in the front blank pages of the volume. And there's like, in some of those volumes, there's over a hundred ancient writers that Strabo mentioned and used as sources for his geography and, and his explanations and descriptions of people and their history that are now lost, that are lost to us. Paul of Tarsus lived only a couple of decades after Strabo. Paul would have been going to school in Tarsus. He must have had access to a lot of those writings that are now lost. Because a great wealth of knowledge has not survived. In fact, Strabo himself had, a, had written an entire history of Assyria, which was lost in history, which we don't have anymore. It's referenced. He mentions it in his geography, but it's gone. Diodorus Siculus's library of history is in 12 lobe, library, lobe classical library volumes, but it's only half his writing. The other half was lost. Lost to time. Manuscripts can no longer be located. The, the, the wars and, and, and all the problems we've had in our own history have, have um, caused us to lose a, a great number of our ancient literary works, ancient historians. We can dismiss some of them as fabulous, but they can't all just be tossed out. We can't toss this out. Otherwise, we have no historical record at all. But the, the, the um, modern academics often despise these histories and, and mock them because they might have some myth mixed in. You know, Herodotus mixed a lot of myth in with his histories. 
But Herodotus himself explained in a couple of places that he doesn't necessarily necessarily believe all of it, but that he felt that it was his duty to record everything that was reported to him by the various people he visited in various places. So that's why he mixed the myth in with his history, for the most part. But that doesn't discredit the history. It would be ridiculous to discredit the history. We, we see the, um, the rise of the Assyrian Empire, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, around the... Um, the 13th century, the Assyrians began to um, become strong and look into the conquering of other nations and overseas interests. And, and they're basically competing with the Israelites by about the end of the 10th or, or the middle of the 9th century. By the end of the 8th century, we see, I'm sorry, by the End of the ninth century, we see that Assyria is a threat to the people of Israel, and that's when the book of the prophet Jonah was written. And by the end of the eighth century, the Assyrians have come into Palestine and actually deported, resettled a lot of the tribes which were um, east of the Jordan River, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh, and a lot of the Syrians in, in Damascus and other places and the surrounding villages anyway and towns. And the Assyrians had resettled a lot of those people up into the region that we know today as Armenia. And they began those resettlements. And, and it says in the scriptures that they were resettled in the cities of the Medes. And that's modern Armenia. And by the end of the 7th century... Or, or, I'm sorry, but by the end of the 8th century, Samaria is taken, and, and those people are resettled, the, the capital city of the ten northern tribes. By the middle of the 7th century, by the reign of Esar Haddan, who, who in the 670s BC, the, the population of ancient Israel and under the time of Sennacherib, Sennacherib, or, or Sennacherib, it could be pronounced, or Sennacherib, around um, the rule of Hezekiah, king of Judah, around 699 BC. By that time, not only have most of the ten northern tribes of Israel been resettled in the north around the Caucasus, the southern edge of the Caucasus Mountains and, and the, the Caspian and Black Seas, but also most of the people of Judah. And Sennacherib only left the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem behind. Everybody else was that he could get his hands on was re, re, removed and relocated to northern Mesopotamia. When we read the earliest accounts of the Scythians, they dwell along the Araxes River, which is in Media. And that's the same place where the Assyrians had brought the Israelites. 
Herodotus basically begins his accounts of the Scythians by describing a war of of the king of the Persians, Cyrus, the famous king, who attempted to conquer those Scythians and couldn't do it. And eventually Cyrus died trying to conquer the Scythians on the other side of the Araxes River, just where the Assyrians had deposited the ancient Israelites. And we see this is that this is um reflected in the work of Flavius Josephus in Antiquities Book Eleven, where he describes the location of the supposedly lost tribes. It says here, Antiquities Book Eleven, therefore there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe, subject to the Romans while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now, and are an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. Beyond the Euphrates from Jerusalem would be Mesopotamia, northern Media, northern Syria. And, and if you go, and Josephus wrote this around 90 to 100 AD in that, in that period of time, and when you go to the works of um, Strabo, of Strabo the geographer, or Diodorus Siculus, and you read their descriptions of the people in that same place, what do you come up with? You come up with Parthians and Goths and Alans. You come up with Scythians or Sake, the same people that migrated west into Europe. There's also. Um, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say that there's also um, all the tablets that are in the Nineveh Library that was found, and they got translated in the 1930s that, that show that the people that were in, in that area were were the Israelites, and they, they called them Gomri as well as calling them uh, Saka or, or Scythians. So we're showing that the Gomri and the Scythians were, were exactly the same people, and there's tons of of these letters where they were where they were spying on them. The Assyrians were spying on these people, and they wrote about them. And it tells you that, and also on the the Behustun rock, they carved it on a huge rock face in four different languages. So you can see that these were the Israelites. And you, again, it's something that you can't argue against, and yet it's just it's just not known by by the church, by the mainstream church. They, they don't teach it. And yet it's this history that, that proves everything that, that's said in the Bible, that proves that these ten tribes, they didn't intermingle with, with the people that were there. They kept to their laws. They married their own people. They increased and they, and they moved on up in, into Europe. And, and that's the only, only explanation for it. And that's the explanation that fits all the prophecies and, and all the promises of what would happen in, in the Old Testament that again just seems to get ignored by, by the modern day churches. Well, well, right. Josephus could only see these people from his perspective that they were beyond the Euphrates and they were an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. And that would be in the area of the Black and Caspian Seas, the Caucasus Mountains, by which 19th century, 18th century scholars knew to call Europeans Caucasians. And, and that they that they just were 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 continuously growing in their population. That's Josephus's perspective, but he could not see the other side of the coin that these people 
around the Caucasus Mountains and, and the two seas were going up through the Caucasus Mountains. He couldn't see that. They were migrating around the Black Sea into Europe. He couldn't see that. Josephus, is he knows about the Goths. He knows about the Alans. He talks about them in his Book of Wars as if they're his people, and and he, he mentions wars with the Alans in the Book of Wars of the Judeans. He wrote his Book of Wars in Aramaic and sent it to these people, hoping to get them to join in the war against the Romans, hoping to help the Judeans overthrow Rome. And of course, they never got involved in it. But among these people were some of the earliest converts to Christianity. Even though it was the Aryan form of Christianity, the Goths and the Alans became Aryan Christians long before Rome accepted Christianity, at least a hundred years. The Parthians are another branch of these people. And, and Josephus, other portions of Josephus's writings help to establish that Parthians, Goths, and Alans were all descended from these Israelites. When we go to um, Strabo and Diodorus Siculus and look for immense multitudes of people, not to be estimated by numbers, north of the Euphrates from where Josephus is, all we find is Scythians, Parthians, Goths, and Alans. It's a, it's the also, um, chief district of Armenia, described by Strabo, is Sake Sunai, and and that's named for the Sake, and and the Greeks originally called the people coming migrating into Europe north of them from Asia. The Greeks originally called them Kimeroi, and that's from the Assyrian Kumri, which is also in Aramaic called Gemiri, right? So we have the Cymri or Kimeroi or Kimerians clearly identified, and even Herodotus explains Kimerians of Mesopotamia. And and we have Kimerians in Germany and, and Cymri in Britain by the fourth century BC. These Cymri had had been migrating down the Danube River Valley and, and up the Rhine and crossing into Britain. They're also in Denmark. You know, they've also got them in Denmark. Right, which is northern Germany, basically northern Germany. Um, that these that these people were the Kimeroi, the Cymri of the Assyrian inscriptions, which was the Assyrian name for the Israelites. And that's very clear in Assyrian inscriptions that they called the Israelites the Bit Qumri, or the house of Amri, in in our Bible. Amri being the, the one of the um, notable kings of the ancient Israelites from the time when Assyria first started invading the land of the Israelites. And they named those people after him, because he was their king. And when we see those inscriptions that you mentioned, like the, the, the Behistun Rock inscription, 
in one language that they are Sake, and in another language they are Gamiri, and in another language they're Kamri, and and that's Aramaic and and Persian and and Akkadian, which is the Assyrian language, and and we can equate these people because they're equated by the ancient kings themselves who made those inscriptions in multiple languages. And they're one name in one language and another name in the other language. They're Sake, Kimroy, Gimiri, um, Scythians. They're all the same people. And they had their origin in the same place the Israelites were left in antiquity. And they are, they were later called Galatahi by the Greeks. At first, they were called Sake or Kithians or Kimeroi, but they were later called Galatahi. And they are the forerunners of the Germanic people. That's where Germans came from. That's why when the promise was made to Abraham, there were no Germans. There were no German people. There may have been some Japethite wanderers or, or temporary settlements in the land that we know as Germany today or the Ukraine or Central Europe, but they're not the ancestors of the German people. They're pr merely predecessors in those lands. The Thracians were, were in Thrace, and, and the Greeks and the Phoenicians of Miletus were founding colonies up and down the Danube River and around the shores of the Black Sea. They were founding colonies that they were looking for salt and gold and silver and other things like that. And they had no opposition from Germans. <clears throat> they had no opposition from Germans. The first tribes of the Galatahi become known to the Romans in the 5th century B.C., when they came down the Danube River Valley and started invading the lands of the Etruscans to the north. And by 390 BC, they nearly sacked Rome. They nearly destroyed Rome. And Livy said that the, they were a strange new people to the Romans. So you're not going to tell me that Germans dwelt just north of Italy for many, many centuries and the Romans didn't know them because the Romans were constantly looking for salt deposits and precious metals and iron and things like that to the lands to their north, in the lands to their north and along that same Danube River Valley. The Greeks were doing the same thing. The Malaysians, who were the Phoenicians in um, southwest Anatolia were doing the same thing, founding settlements on the Danube River Valley like Hallstatt in, in order to mine salt or mine gold or mine silver, whatever they could find up there, and bring it, bring it back to the Mediterranean. Herodotus wrote of the amber trade all the way to the Baltic and how it was conducted by Phoenicians. And the, these people were well aware of Northern Europe, but there are no Germans. There are no Galatahi until those tribes migrate from Asia. And they are those so-called lost tribes of the Israelites. 
Did the Galatahi become the Galatians that Paul was writing to? Yes, the word is Galatahi in Greek. Yet, you know, I, I really believe, yet, you know, Homer mocked the Homer's writing at the end of the 7th century BC. That's when he's writing. That could be established. He mocked the, um, the Scythians, the Kimaroi. He mocked them as mare milkers and milk drinkers. And the word for milk in Greek is gala. And I can't prove it, but I really believe that that label galatahi, the label galatahi, I can't find in Greek writings until the um, the tragic poets and, and afterwards, that, that period of time, un, until the 4th or maybe late, late 5th centuries. I don't think it exists in the 5th century. I, I explained this in my German origin series, but I don't have all the details that they kind of become cloudy over time in my head, right? I don't think Galatahi is a term for Germans existed until at least the beginning of the 4th century. If it was earlier than that, it's not much earlier, the 4th century BC. I believe that came from um, Homer's mocking them as mare milkers and milk drinkers, basically, because they lived off their herds. And Herodotus explains how the Scythians lived off their flocks and, and primarily used their flocks as their food supply, milk and meat. So we have these... Um, Milk drinkers, which the Greeks evidently looked down upon, and they're they're eventually called Galatahi. I really believe that word came from the word for milk, and and we have the Latin word Gaul, which is basically just a shortening of that. And there's a word Gaulus in Latin, which I believe mean refers to a milk bucket. If I'm not mistaken, I think I've written about that in the past. So. I think that's why they were called Galatahi. I can't prove it, but I think that's why. But there's no other explanation for the transition in the Greek labels for these people from Scythian and Sake, which the Greek early which is Herodotus's principal word for them, to Galatahi. There's really no other no other explanation that I've seen. So by the time of um the the third and fourth century Greek writers, all these people are Galatahi. All of these Scythians to the north in Europe are being called Galatahi. And they're the people that invaded Rome that were called a strange new people by Livy. So the Romans couldn't have known about them until they started to invade the cities of the Etruscans and they started to invade the cities of the Etruscans within 200 years of the deportations by the Assyrians and their settlement in the, the area of the Caucasus Mountains and the Black Sea. Well, what about the word um, German then? I, mean, I know that Saxon came from Scythian and, and Sakasani and, and Saka. That's where we get Saxon from. So where did um, the word German come from then? Well, well when the Galatahi started to pour over the Rhine River and enter into France and, and Britain and Ireland and places like that, there were people already there. 
There were people already there that were primarily descended from Japetites or Phoenicians, one or the other. There were people already inhabiting for a long time the river valleys of France. They were descended from either Japetites or Phoenicians. And the Iberian Peninsula, the Japetites of Tartessus, and the, the Iberian or Phoenician tribes. So we already had people in Gaul. The Greeks had a huge settlement in France on the Mediterranean Sea at Marseille, which was Massilia in ancient times, right? So that the the Phocian Greeks already had other settlements. They settled Massilia or Marseille, and they had other settlements as well in, in France. So we had these Gauls come into um into France, into what was known as Gaul by the Romans. And the Romans believed that the the Galatahi in France had mingled with the older populations to a great degree, right? These aren't the Franks. These are the people that the Franks later conquered. And Frank is another um, term that could be explained, but Frank was actually, it meant free in ancient Germanic. The Franks were, were not ruled by the Romans when they conquered Gaul, before they conquered Gaul, right? That's why they're called Franks or free Germans. The Romans believed that the Galatahi in Germany represented a more pure strain of the race than the Galatahi in France because the Galatahi in France had mingled, in Gaul, had mingled with the local populations. That's what the Romans believed. So they called the Galatahi in Germany Germanus, because Germanus means authentic in Latin. And Strabo explains this. I don't remember exactly where in his geography, but it is explained in his geography that that's why the Romans called the, the Galatahi in Germany Germans, because they were Germanus, they were the authentic Galatahi. And even Strabo thought that they were blonder and fairer than the Galatahi of France, right? That's a Germain, isn't it? I think we still use the yes. same, same, word, same word Germain today to mean authentic. Yes, yes um, it does. Let, let's read this. Um, yeah, let's have a look at... Um, you know where where it comes up in the Bible where this is where this is actually prophesied. I've got um, Isaiah chapter forty nine, verse seven here. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all the high places. They shall not hunger, nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. 
and I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far and low, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people, and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Now, all of these chapters of Isaiah, from about chapter 41, 42, 43, all the way through the end of Isaiah, are messianic in nature and have this message to these same children of Israel who are being deported or had recently been deported from the northern kingdom and from the environs of Jerusalem at the time Isaiah was writing. It could be established from Isaiah that he wrote up until the time of Hezekiah and the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. And Isaiah, his records end right around that time or, or right after that time. So we see in Isaiah that he was not only a prophet of the deportations of the Israelites early in his writing, but he was a witness to those deportations and their aftermath later in his writing. So a lot of people, a lot of so-called academics, like to split Isaiah in half, I think at chapter 41, and say this is a different Isaiah. It's not a different Isaiah. According to Christ and the Apostles, it's all the same Isaiah, and it's written from two different perspectives, because the first 40 chapters are written as the children of Israel are about to be or are being deported by the Assyrians, and the last 25 chapters of Isaiah are written, or 24 maybe, my numbers aren't exact, this is off the top of my head, are written from the perspective that these people are already deported by the Assyrians, but have this promise of redemption and reconciliation to God that we see here. And when we look at this language that you just read, that this, um, this people that are in darkness, the prisoners, which is a reference to the Israelites taken into Assyrian captivity, them that are in darkness. When we go to the promise of, of Christ and the purpose of the gospel of Christ and the ministry of Christ in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, and, and I'll read through from verse 78, and I could go back further, but we, we will um, discuss this bigger passage of Luke later in the series. We go to Luke chapter 1, verse 78. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high, meaning the light from on high, has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The purpose of Christ is the same purpose that God has for these same people in Isaiah chapter 49. And we will establish that to a greater degree later in the series. All of the promises of Isaiah, all of the promises of God in all the prophets are geared towards his reconciliation, his reconciliation and his spiritual revival of these same people who were deported by the Assyrians and, and who were already scattered overseas 
by the time of Isaiah. All of the promises in Christ are for the same people that were under the old covenant and scattered in ancient times. There's a, um, a passage here from 2nd Esdras, which supports Isaiah and Josephus, and once we understand the, the language in 2nd Esdras, it supports the account of the migrations of these people from the lands that they were taken to by the Assyrians into Central Europe. If, if you want to read this passage from 2nd okay. Esdras, chapter 13. Second Esdras, chapter 13, verse 39. As to the fact that you saw him collecting to himself another peaceful multitude, these are the ten tribes that were taken captive from their land in the days of King Hoshea, whom King Shalmaneser of the Assyrians took across the river as a captive. They were taken into another land, but they made this plan for themselves. They would leave the multitude of the nations and go into a more remote region where the human race had never lived. There they would be able to observe their customs, which they hadn't kept in their own region. They went in through the narrow passages of the Euphrates River. Then the Most High gave them signs and stopped the flow of the river until they had passed. They made a long journey through that region for a year and a half, and that region is called Azareth. They lived there until the last time, and now they begin again to return. The Most High will once again stop the flow of the river so that they can cross. These people make up the multitude gathered in peace, along with those who are left of your people, who are found within my holy boundaries. Then when he begins to destroy the multitude of the nations that are gathered, he will protect the people who have survived. Then he will show them many more signs. I, I want to close with this paragraph and, and a little discussion, but I would like to open our, our next portion with this same paragraph and, and how it accords with the words of many of the prophets especially the prophets Obadiah and, and Jeremiah and the Revelation, chapter 20 of the Revelation. The, this drying up of the river is also mentioned in the Revelation. That stop the flow of the river is a, um, is a reference to the Euphrates River and a crossing of the Euphrates River which is mentioned a little earlier in the same passage that you just read. They went in through the narrow passages of the Euphrates River. We have in 2nd Esdras a picture of the children of Israel deported by the Assyrians crossing the Euphrates River, right? And, and from there, the Assyrians took them across the river as captive. From there, they had a journey of a year and a half and settled in a place called Arsareth, or here Arzareth. That Arsareth, it, it could be established, must be Hebrew. It must be a Hebrew fr phrase returning, re referring to the mountains of Sareth. That word Ar is a mountain in Hebrew. Armenia is from a Hebrew term simply meaning mountain parts, because a mini is a part. 
Armenia is mountain parts. It's the mountainous region. That's what it describes in Hebrew. That's the origination of that word, where it came from. Ar-Sareth means mountains of Sareth or Sareth. And to this day, there is a river called the Sareth River or Sareth River, which flows through Romania which has its sources in the Carpathian Mountains in the Ukraine. And there was also a Suret River in the Ukraine, which is a tributary of the Dniester. Whichever of those two rivers Esdras is referring to here is immaterial. If you picture a large mass of people resettling, Esdras is basically telling us that these people that passed over to Euphrates, that a great multitude of them had migrated into Central Europe. And that's the same thing we see with the Scythians in the Greek histories, in the Greek classical histories, that they migrated around the Black Sea into Central Europe and were working their way across Europe. And a couple of hundred years later, they show up in Rome, sacking Rome, but they're called Galatahi instead of Scythians, or Gauls instead of Scythians. It's interesting, that word uh, sack as well, uh, sacking Rome, if that comes from, you know, Isaac, you know, his, his <laughs> land was sacked. Right. It, it is an ancient term, though. It's even a Hebrew term um, for, for a sack, I believe. For a very similar meaning. It's interesting. These these um, uh, verses 48 and 49, it says that who's left of the people are found within my holy boundaries. And then when, when the multitude of the nations that are gathered are destroyed, he will protect the people who have survived, meaning he will protect the Israelites. These other nations are going to be destroyed, but the, the Israelites are, are going to be protected and they're going to see many, many more signs. And we're going to see that in Jeremiah and Obadiah, and, and even to this very day, we're going to see it in Revelation. But it did happen to a great extent in ancient times. And shortly after all the Israelites were deported by the Assyrians, Assyria, the Israelites helped to destroy Assyria in league with the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians. Then Babylonia rose to predominance and deported the rest of Jerusalem, but just as the, the prophecies in the Bible warned hundreds of years before, Babylon was destroyed by the Persians. Here we have an, enough historical evidence, I think, we presented, because there is a great deal more, and, and most of that's in my essays at Christiania on, on the topic. Here we have presented um, a great deal of the evidence that there was a great diaspora of Israelites in ancient times before the 7th century BC, before the end of the 7th century BC, and none of them were Jews. There's no immense multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates in the days of Josephus. You could look all you want, it didn't exist. You can find a synagogue here and there in archaeology, 
that may have been established in the 3rd or 4th century BC because some of those Israelites stayed in that land and maintained their traditions. But you won't find an immense multitude that was impossible to number, as Josephus describes. So, these people must have been the Scythians, the Sake, the, the Chimerians of history, and the inscriptions certainly proved that they were. And, and those was, are the forerunners of the Germanic people. Isn't there also um, a, a promise, I think it's in the book of 1 or 2 Samuel, that uh, the Israelites will be taken up from their land and then placed into a new land, which will be which they won't have to take from other people. It will be a new land that, they'll, that they will be taken to. And this, this prophecy is actually given when they're, they're already in the land of Canaan. So it's talking about, about somewhere else. Is that in 1 or 2 Samuel? I believe it's 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. And Samuel is speaking to David, and he's speaking to David in Jerusalem. And he's saying, moreover, I will appoint, he's Samuel speaking on behalf of God. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own. In other words, without the Canaanites and the other accursed peoples, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And of course, we have children of wickedness afflicting us now, but we're waiting to get to the point where they will afflict us no more. But yes, that place that's described in Second Samuel chapter 7 cannot be in Palestine. It can't be in Palestine. So Palestine is not the scene as the permanent home of God's people. It's the, the, the home of his enemies, and, and that's described in other places in Scripture. Yeah, it can only be Europe, can't it? When it says that they won't have to move like a time, it's because they moved a time because they were removed by the Assyrians. And going out and colonizing America and Australia, you know, that wasn't because we were being oppressed from all sides by Assyrians. It was because, you know, we have that spirit of adventure. Well, just like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he told the Galatahi in Anatolia, who are known as Galatians, right? I mean, that's only an anglicized form of Galatahi, Galatians. He told them the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. He told them that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. Now, how could this apply to Galatians? Unless they're Israelites, who were at one time under the law. And that's absolutely proof. So again, Paul corroborates the ancient histories and the ancient inscriptions. He doesn't conflict with them. He verifies them. And we'll pick it up at this point in part five of this series, Fan. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I think it's a good series. I, I'm getting a lot of um, good feedback from people that are saying they're, they're in, enjoying it as well. So I, I look forward to... Uh, Seeing you again uh, next Saturday. Wonderful. I just hope that the um, the the discussion, the, the the casual discussion and and general breakdown helps people understand Christian identity.
that we do have a basis. We're not crazy. We're not making this shit up. <laughs> it's just not happening. We, we actually have a solid foundation for believing what we believe. It's not new either. Preach. That's the thing. It's not new. I think that's that's an important point to make. It's not new. This is all based on non-Jewish history. It's based on Aryan history from thousands of years back. Not um, Not anything new. Right. It's the Jews that have worked over time, over centuries, to obscure this history. And, and when they couldn't obscure it, that they've done their best to ridicule it in, in modern academia. Thank you, Sven. Praise Christ. God bless. <laughs>